I didn't pay him for that. <laughs> it's been kind of a rough week uh, for, the, for the body this past week, just in terms of uh, illness and, and disease. We have a number of folks, part of the body here, that have been laid aside with some uh, pretty serious health afflictions. And it's just a reminder of the world in which we live. We, f- we live in a really broken world. It is broken by sin, and its effects upon the creation show themselves in many ways, and not the least of which is sickness and disease. We are blessed, you and I, in the providence of God to live in the day and age that we do, the place where we live. We have access to some of the finest medical care in the world. God has brought in this last century uh, some tremendous advances in terms of medical research and, and science and so forth. And, and uh, although we are certainly not disease-free and never will be until Jesus uh, comes and establishes his great millennial kingdom here on earth, but we enjoy a tremendous degree of, of uh, bodily health and fitness and in that we can really rejoice. You know, it's, uh, it's not always been that way. Just a, a generation ago, the word polio would strike fear into the hearts of people. My mother is a polio survivor. She contact, contracted the disease as a little girl. And in the God's good grace... My mother survived, and she's even able to walk uh, to this day. But uh, when she came down with polio, it was a very traumatic time for the family. People were so fearful of that disease that their minister refused to come and visit the home. People would, neighbors would cross over the street when they pass by the house, rather than walking down the sidewalk in front of the home. That's how fearful people were of contacting this disease. They didn't understand it. They knew it was dangerous and devastating. And so they acted in ways that are difficult for us to understand today. Maybe the closest we could come to would be perhaps AIDS or something like that. But there was just a tremendous amount of fear associated with polio. How times have changed, right? We don't even really think about polio anymore. It's unless you're of my parents' generation, then for most of us, it's just some sort of historical anomaly. Times have changed. I want to talk to you this morning about Jesus' healing ministry. And to do that, I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 4, and I'm going to take you back to verse 23. And you're probably thinking to yourself, if this guy goes backwards instead of forwards, we're never going to finish this book. That's what you do when you've had a rough week. See, you go back and preach old sermons, saves you a lot of time. Most people can't remember last week's sermon anyway, so. (laughs) We're back here in uh, Matthew 
chapter 4 and verse 23, and I, and I take you there just because it's a summary statement. And it summarizes what is known as Jesus' great Galilean ministry. About 18 months of his three-and-a-half-year public ministry was spent in Galilee in what's called this great Galilean ministry. And so Matthew records for us in, in just a couple of verses here a summary of that ministry Verse 23 says, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. Now, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, we know as the Sermon on the Mount, are are an illustration of Jesus' teaching ministry. And now that they have finished, Matthew has finished giving that to us, he's going to return to the theme that he introduced earlier, just before this this passage on the Sermon on the Mount, those chapters. So it's almost like it's a, a, a parenthesis in where he is going. Matthew arranges his gospel this way, with a series of discourses or or lengthy discussions, Sermon on the Mount being the first and probably the foremost. But now in chapter 8 and 9 of Matthew, and that's really where we're going to go this morning, we have a return to the theme that that Matthew handled very briefly there back in chapter 4 and verse 23. Chapters 8 and 9 are going to give some specific examples of his healing ministry. The Sermon on the Mount was his teaching ministry. This will now be his healing ministry. And there are a series of miracles that are are brought to our attention here in chapters 8 and 9. And they demonstrate Jesus' power. That's what it's all about. It is the demonstration of the power and the authority of Jesus And it's arranged by Matthew in a a series of of nine specific examples. There are three sets of three, is how it's structurally put together. Three sets of three miracles, and and it demonstrates his power and his authority over disease, over demons, and then over nature. So it's his healing ministry and beyond. It's his miraculous authority and power as the very Son of God. Each of the three miracles is followed by a, by a teaching or a, or a discussion of what it means to be a disciple or a follower of Jesus. That's structurally how it's put together. Three miracles, a little discussion of discipleship, three more miracles, another discussion of discipleship, three more miracles, discipleship. That's how chapters 8 and 9 are put together. Now, chronologically, the, the three healing miracles that we would look at in the first sequence here in chapter 8, which occupy verses 1 through 17, they do not chronologically follow the Sermon on the Mount. At least not all of them do. And you need to know that about Matthew's gospel. Matthew does not write a chronological gospel. Matthew writes a thematic gospel. He arranges material that from the public ministry of Christ, true things that were done and said, but he brings them together in an order that illustrates the direction that this gospel is going. And uh, you can see it there on the slide. We've, we've titled this entire series in Matthew, Behold Your King. Behold Your King. 
And so he is arranging things in order that, that you cannot miss that. So when we get to, to the first three healing miracles here in verses 1 through 17, they do not follow chronologically the Sermon on the Mount. Actually, they go in this order, and you can just sketch it down quickly if you want to. The first is Peter's, the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. Verses 14 through 17 is actually the first of the three miracles chronologically. It's followed by verses 2 through 4, the healing of the leper. That's the next chronologically. Following that comes the Sermon on the Mount. This is in the life of Jesus chronologically as we Westerners like to think about history. The final is the healing of the centurion's servant, beginning in verse 5 and running all the way to verse 13. So if you wanted to put this thing in chronological order, it would be Peter's mother-in-law, then the leper, then the Sermon on the Mount, then the healing of the centurion's servant. Now we know that by the comparison of the other gospel accounts that also speak of these same things. So by comparing the three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we can get the correct chronological order. Now, take a look at verse 29 and verse 7. It's speaking, Matthew speaks here in a summary form about Jesus. Actually, we'll look at verse 28 and 29. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and it says, When he had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. And we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Because, or for, he was teaching them as one having, and here's a key word, authority. Teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Matthew will now go on to illustrate for us what kind of authority he really has. He has made some incredibly bold statements. Matthew will now illustrate the authority that stands behind those kinds of bold statements. For Jesus to be able to say, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. So we're going to see the authority of Jesus Christ. And we want to see this because because we want to understand that he possesses the authority of God himself. That he is the great messianic king of Israel. He is the very son of God. Indeed, he is God of very God himself. And the only way to know that is to look at his amazing displays of authority and power, his miracles. So, Matthew 8 Verses 2 through 17 represent three demonstrations of Jesus' authority, which prove him to be Israel's great messianic king. That's the big outline. There are going to be three miracles, three demonstrations of his authority. Now, there's no way this morning we're going to be able to look at three miracles with, with the sort of attention that they need to have. So we are going to boil it down and just look at the first of the three demonstrations of his authority we'll Pick it up next week on the others. So let's take a look here at chapter 8. Verse 1 is is just a bridge statement. When Jesus came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him. That's true. Large crowds followed him. His popularity is still ascending at this point. It has not yet crested, it has not yet begun the the long descent which will eventuate in in the nation's call for him to be crucified. So it is true that there are large crowds still following him. And one of the reasons the large crowds are following is because 
of his amazing displays of power. His amazing displays of power. And who wouldn't follow a man like this? But the, what follows here in verses 2 through 4, this, this uh, vignette, this, uh, to use the more technical term, pericope, for those of you who like that sort of stuff, uh, it does not follow chronologically, as I said, that the descent from the mountain at the Sermon on the Mount. And we know that when we compare the, the other gospel accounts to this. And, and Matthew's not telling us that it does. When you look at the Greek here, it's, it's not written in a way to, to, to communicate that to us. So he's not deceiving in any way. He's just tying this thing together. We know further, by the way, just sort of logically speaking, that, uh, that this event and the healing of the leper could not have occurred in the context of a large crowd or a large multitude. And we know that because of what Jesus says at the end of, of this uh, incident here in verse 4 when he tells them to be quiet and don't tell anybody. So obviously if it happened in front of a gigantic crowd, it would be kind of foolish to say that. So this healing happens somewhere off to the side in, in such a circumstance in which there are very few witnesses. Very few witnesses. Certainly Luke uh, uh, writes about it, but he writes about it because of his investigation. Mark writes about it as well. And so we don't really know which disciples were there, but I would imagine there were at least a couple of witnesses to it. But for the most part, this is a very private kind of miracle, and we'll, we'll ask and answer the question why a little bit later this morning. So let's take a look here at verses 2 through 4, and it's a demonstration of Jesus' authority over defilement. Okay? Jesus' authority over defilement. And the clearest way, I think, to do this is to, is to break this down. There are, there are three verses, and I'm going to break it down into, into three parts. With just a quick little statement about each verse to, to kind of give it some, some structure and some outline. So, verse 2 I'm calling this the leper's courageous request. The leper's courageous request. Let's take a look at verse 2. And the leper came to him and bowed down before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now immediately we are confronted in this text with the dreaded disease of leprosy. The word leprosy, even today, is, 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 a, is a word that strikes a certain amount of anxiety or even fear into people's minds. I would venture to, to, um, to bet that the vast majority of the people here in this room this morning have no personal experience with this terrible disease. And yet, just by hearing about it, it sort of conjures up images in your mind and they're dreadful. And they should be dreadful, for it is a dreadful disease. The English word uh, leprosy comes from the Greek word uh, lepos. And that Greek word uh, means scale, S-C-A-L-E, scale. And it speaks about the early symptoms of the disease of leprosy. Leprosy, in its early stages, thickens the skin it makes it glossy and then scaly. These are the early symptoms of this disease of leprosy. What is leprosy? 
Well, I went online and did a little bit of you know, research on the disease. And uh, these are the things that I found. Modern leprosy, and it's also known as Hansen's disease, and is named after a 19th century Norwegian physician whose last name was Hansen. Leprosy is a disease caused by a bacteria. It is a bacterial disease. And it's, uh, I won't give you the name. If you've got my notes, it's written in there. And this uh, disease causes damage to the skin and the peripheral nervous system. The disease develops slowly, anywhere from six months to 40 years. So it's a very slow-moving disease. It results in skin lesions and deformities, most often affecting the cooler places on the body, for example, the eyes, the nose, the earlobes, the hands, the feet, and so forth. The skin lesions and deformities can be very disfiguring and are the reason that infected individuals historically are considered outcasts in many cultures. How is it transmitted? How is the disease of leprosy transmitted? Again, the best research that I could find, and I'm quoting this, by the way, researchers, listen to this, this is really amazing to me. This is an ancient disease. There are indications of leprosy among the the embalmed of of, uh, Egypt in Pharaoh's time. Okay, so this thing goes back thousands of years, 5,000 years. Quote, researchers suggest that the bacteria are spread person to person by nasal secretions or droplets. However, the disease is not highly contagious like the flu. They speculate that infected droplets reach other people's nasal passages and and the infection begins there. Some investigators suggest the infected droplets can infect others by entering breaks in the skin. The bacteria apparently cannot infect intact skin. Now, I thought that was fascinating. Here is a, here is a website, and this, this entry was, I think it was from late 2011, is laced with words like suggest, speculate, and apparently. What that says to me is there is a lot about this dreadful disease that we still really don't know. There are treatments available, and they are of varying degrees of helpfulness, and they're antibiotic-based. If they are administered early enough, it, it apparently can arrest the disease. What cannot be done is it cannot be reversed, meaning any damage that has been done remains with the individual. So the disease cannot be reversed. Now, I want to... Go one more step here and and bear with me on this. I want to read to you another description of the disease uh, written by a Christian missionary doctor who had firsthand uh, knowledge with those who had contacted this dreadful disease. And, And I do this because unless we understand this disease, this miracle is sort of ho hum. You'll read over it. Once you understand this disease, you are going to be absolutely stunned by what Jesus does. So I read in a quote, and I think I have this one for you on the screen, I do. Description of leprosy. 
As the sickness progresses, the thickened spots become dirty sores and ulcers due to poor blood supply. The skin, especially around the eyes and ears, begins to bunch with deep furrows between the swellings so that the face of the afflicted individual begins to resemble that of a lion. Fingers drop off or are absorbed. Toes are affected similarly. Eyebrows and eyelashes drop out. By this time, one can see that the person in this pitiable condition is a leper. By a touch of the finger, one can also feel it. One can even smell it, for the leper emits a very unpleasant odor. Moreover, in view of the fact that the disease-producing agent frequently also attacks the larynx, the leper's voice acquires a grating quality. It is a completely devastating disease. It is so serious in terms of its effect upon an individual and upon society that in the book of Leviticus, where the the holiness code for the nation is given, God uh, gives to Moses 116 verses Two chapters of Leviticus dealing with the disease of leprosy. Now, when we participate in the through the Bible in a year reading program, right, you get to Leviticus 13 and 14 and your eyes start to go sideways, and sometimes you know you can even get a little bit of a spirit of mockery. When you read it and you go, you know, it's talking about white spots and the colors of hair and all this sort of stuff, right? You go, ah. 116 verses dealing with this dreadful disease. And these verses, by the way, these two chapters, chapter 13 deals with the detection of the disease. Chapter 14 with the ceremonial cleansing should someone miraculously be healed by the disease. There's nothing about how to to cure it. Nothing. To touch a leper, according to Leviticus... 1457 was to become defiled yourself. You touch them, you become defiled. Therefore, the law required that the priest carefully investigate any possible outbreaks of the disease of leprosy. If, after two separate quarantines, it was determined by the priest that the person had leprosy, they were declared to be a leper. And they were required to go about in the following fashion. This is from Leviticus 13, verses 45 and 46. They were required to go about with torn clothes, disheveled hair, and the lower part of their face covered with a handkerchief. Furthermore, they were required to live outside of the community in what we commonly think of as leper colonies. Whenever they approached anyone, they were to to yell out the words, unclean, unclean, so that people would avoid them. By the time of the New Testament, the rabbis taught that a leper could come no closer than six feet to you. That's as close as they could come. If you were downwind of a leper, the distance was increased to 150 feet. 150 Many people 
would throw rocks at them in order to drive them away. And there is evidence of some rabbis from their writings saying that, yeah, that's what I do. I just throw rocks at them. I drive them away like one would drive away a stray dog. Most people in the New Testament consider leprosy to be a direct punishment from God upon sin. They got that from Numbers chapter 12. Do you remember there where Aaron and Miriam are in rebellion against Moses and God afflicts Miriam with leprosy? Do you remember that? And so building on that was the idea that to, to be afflicted with leprosy was the direct punishment from God upon your sin. It was also further believed that that being healed from leprosy was as difficult as raising the dead. You would would have just as much luck in raising the dead as you would to heal someone who was a leper. Therefore, it always requires the direct intervention of God. That was the thinking at the time of Jesus. You see that, by the way, even back into the Old Testament. I have this for you, 2 Kings chapter 5 and verse 7. This is with a name in the Syrian. Remember, he has leprosy and, and he wants to come, and eventually Elisha heals him. But when the letter is written from, from the, the king of Syria, the king of Aram, to uh, <clears throat> Jehoram, the king of Israel, that he wants uh, him to heal this leper, notice how the king of Israel responds. It's fascinating. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive? That this man is sending word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Consider now and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. I might as well be God. I mean, can I strike people dead? Can I raise people from the dead? No, well, I cannot heal this man's leprosy. Might as well be able to raise the dead. Now, there is some debate on whether all of the reported New Testament instances of leprosy are, in fact, Hansen's disease or not. Bible scholars have some debates about that. But what is not debatable is that a diagnosis of leprosy brought about incredible physical, emotional, relational, and spiritual devastation to the individual who received it. That is absolutely clear. They might as well be dead. In fact, they were considered like the walking dead. You see, Aaron to Moses uh, on Miriam's behalf there, Numbers 12, 12, he says, Oh, do not let her be like one dead whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes from his mother's womb. To be a leper was to be the walking dead, cut off from society, cut off from God in many ways. It was a terrible, terrible thing. Let's go back to verse 2. Let's take a look at this leper's courageous request. A leper came to him, and he bowed down before him, and he said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, there's a, there's a number of observations here that we can and should make with regard to this man's faith. It begins that it was a, it was a reverent request. It was a worshipful request. He says, he addresses him, Lord. 
Now, I know that the, the word can be translated sir, but I don't think that's the right translation here. The word sir is a, you know, a, lure, a word of respect, but, but he's asking for something more than just a respectful person can grant. He is asking for what everyone knows only God can grant. Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And notice, by the way, it says that, that he came and he bowed down before him. Proskuneo is, is the Greek verb here, and, and it's translated frequently by, by worship or, or bowing down or even sort of uh, falling flat on, in, at a person's feet. It's given to us as well in the imperfect tense, and it just it communicates the idea that this man went flat on his face at the feet of Jesus, and that's where he stayed. That's where he stayed. It's a very reverent request. Secondly, it's a humble request. He doesn't offer Jesus any reasons why you ought to look favorably upon him. He doesn't parade before him any sort of virtue or any accomplishments or, you know, anything. I have four children, nothing. He just comes to him in a very humble way, and he asks Jesus to look upon him favorably. And he doesn't even do that directly. You notice, he just says, if you're willing, you can do this. There's an implied request, of course, in that. It's a bold request. He comes to, he comes to Jesus in violation of, the, of the, the law of defilement. He's not supposed to get this close. He's not supposed to come this close. He comes and he, and he falls down at his feet. It's the bold request. The reverent request. It's a humble request. It's a bold request. Fourth, it's a believing request. This man's faith is deeply rooted in Jesus' ability to heal. Look again at it. He bows down flat before him and he says, he says, Lord God, if you are willing, you can make me clean. There's no hesitancy in this man's faith at all. He is absolutely convinced that Jesus can do what only God can do. That's to make him clean. Now this is, I think, all the more remarkable because there, are, there is no evidence that Jesus has ever cleansed or healed a leper prior to this. Most Bible commentators agree on this, that this is the first time he has done this. The first one. So it's not, you know, Jesus, hey, I saw you last week, you healed all these lepers. He comes to him with, with a request for something that has never been done before. Never. You can make me clean, he says. See that? You can make me clean. It's interesting here because the New Testament never, or I should say the other way, the New Testament consistently speaks of the, cleans- or of the healing of leprosy, the curing of leprosy as a cleansing. All the other diseases that, that Jesus deals with are called cures. This one's called a cleansing. Cleansing, and that's, that's consistent throughout the New Testament. When it comes to leprosy, it's about cleansing. And that made leprosy, by the way, the, sort of the perfect illustration of the ravages of sin. It is the perfect illustration of the ravages of sin. And that is that it, that it completely defiles an individual. Sin does. 
It completely ravages an individual. It deforms them. It, it, it defiles them. It, it makes them such that they cannot come near to God. And sin separates us from each other relationally as well. So leprosy is a, is a perfect picture. It's a vivid illustration of the ravages of sin. Verse 3, Jesus' compassionate response. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Now, in in light of what we now know about leprosy, I think this has to be one of the most amazing statements to read about in the New Testament. Jesus reached out his hand and touched him. Let that settle in. Think about that a moment. What would it be like when the law has told you, stay away, when everything inside you is absolutely repulsed by this individual, not just by what you see, by what you smell, and I didn't go on to read it, but but by what you can taste in the air. And Jesus reaches out and touches him. Now, Jesus could have healed him with merely a word. The next healing here of the centurion's servant is done that way. It's a long-distance healing done by a word. And yet Jesus touches the man. He reaches out and he puts his hand on him. Here's a man who is despised. Here's a man who's been cast off by society. Here's a man who has likely not felt the warmth of human touch in a very long time. In Luke's parallel account, Luke chapter 5 and verse 12, Luke, who's a physician writing about this, he says the man was full of leprosy. Full of leprosy. In advanced stages. Jesus touches him. Why? Why did Jesus choose to touch this man? I mean, that's a question you've got to ask yourself. Why did Jesus choose to touch him? Mark's gospel provides an answer for us. Mark chapter 1 and verse 41. You don't have to turn there. I'll just tell you what it says. It says that Jesus was moved with compassion for this man. He was moved with compassion. And so he reached out and put his hand on him. He defied the law and touched the untouchable. Does that mean Jesus became defiled? The answer is no. Absolutely not. Jesus was not defiled by this. You see, something amazing happens here. When Jesus reaches out his hand and he touches this man, rather than Jesus become defiled, the Son of God consumed the leprosy. There was nothing left to defile him. 
Immediately, look at the end of the verse. Immediately, his leprosy was cleansed. And I think you need to understand that. And that is that the disease was reversed. This man was cleansed. This man was healed. This man was cured. The leprosy is gone. Beloved, only God can touch what is unholy and make it holy. And that's exactly what you have here. It's exactly what you have. The man is healed immediately. Do you see it? Immediately. Gone are are the grotesque skin lesions. Gone is the nerve damage. Gone are the consequent formities that have resulted from that disease. This man is restored to health. Such was the power of Jesus to heal. When Jesus healed, it was instantaneous. It was complete and it was irreversible. And you need to hang on to that. When Jesus heals, it is instantaneous, it is complete, and it is irreversible. The leper's courageous request, Jesus' compassionate response, and that takes us to The third, verse 4, Jesus' strange command. It's a very strange command here. Jesus said to him, verse 4, See that you tell no one, but go. Show yourself to the priest and present the offering that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Don't you think that's a strange command? I mean, Jesus, if you want to be popular, wouldn't you want him to, like, tell everybody? Don't tell anyone what has happened. Go and show the priest. Now, that's not the only time that this happens. It happens a number of times that, that in, the, in the Gospels that Jesus commands someone who has received a most amazing deliverance. He tells them to be quiet. Don't tell anybody. Why? Why? Why is he telling this man to, to, you know, keep it the QT, right? Now, he's not going to be able to keep it quiet forever, clearly. I mean, eventually he's going to get back to his village and people are going to say, I think I know you. (laughs) You know, where you been? What happened? But initially, he tells him to to be quiet, don't tell anybody. I want you to go to Jerusalem. Show yourself to the priest. Now, we'll get to that in a minute. Why is Jesus, uh, this is a question before the house, why is Jesus instruct this man, and several other times you'll find it in the Gospels, to not tell anyone about the spectacular miracle that Jesus has done in this person's life? Why? Well, let me suggest a couple of reasons for you. Here's a couple of reasons why Jesus tells these people to be quiet. At this stage in his public ministry, Jesus does not want to to sort of further inflame the crowds. They are already misunderstanding his mission. There's tremendous misunderstanding about his mission here already. 
His miracle working would only further cloud the message. It is a message of repentance and faith towards God, right? Chapter 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, number one, what? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is a message of repentance and redemption. And if it gets too confused with with the spectacular of the miracle working, then, then what will happen is the Jewish people who are already basically thinking of the kingdom of God as this very physical place that they are going to inherit because of their lineage from Abraham, their, their physical descent from Abraham, that if Jesus inflames that notion further with these incredible miracles, then the whole thing is going to go off the rails. The kingdom of heaven is a physical place. Okay, if you've been here for any length of time, you know that. The kingdom of heaven is a physical place. It is a millennial kingdom here on earth. Revelation 20 tells us it lasts a thousand years. And it's a glorious place. But it is a physical kingdom that is, that is built upon, not a person's birthright, but it is built upon spiritual principles. One must enter the kingdom of God through the new birth. It is a spiritual doorway into the physical kingdom. Physical kingdom built on spiritual principles entered through a spiritual doorway. That is the kingdom of God. So Jesus wants to to try to keep this thing from from becoming further clouded, further confused... And in all the popularity, and all the noise, and all the excitement, the true message gets drowned out. Secondly, an untimely surge in popularity could easily have been misunderstood by the Roman government as a threat to their system. And if there's one thing about Rome that you, you absolutely have to know, is that Rome could abide no political threats to its system. They were ruthless, and they would crush them. And so if there is a a growing popularity in this tinderbox called Israel of another king to replace Caesar, then the might and weight of the Roman legions would rapidly descend upon it and crush it. It would have led to Jesus' untimely arrest. Simple as that. Jesus is on a divine timetable. He's going to get to where he needs to get to at the right place and at the right time. And nothing can intervene with that. But, but you need to understand that, that Jesus, as he, as he lived and ministered as a man among men, that he used wisdom. Wisdom. And so we need to keep this thing under wraps. So that Rome doesn't spin out of control. And by the way, you can, you can write these down, check them out on your own. But, but John 6 and verse 15, where after the feeding of the 5,000, the crowd wants to take him by force and make him king, it says. John 11 and verse 48, the, the, uh, the high priest and the leaders of, of Israel are saying, you know what, this guy's getting so crazy popular that Rome's going to come and they're going to destroy the temple and they're going to take away the whole priesthood and this whole thing's going to unravel. 
So we've got to kill him. It's a very real threat. So, keep it under wraps. Don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. But, go show yourself to the priest and present the offering that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Now, notice that Jesus says here, to the priest, definite article. He doesn't say go and show a priest. He says go and show it to the priest. That means there's a particular priest. And that only makes sense. I mean, the, 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 the diagnosing of leprosy, according to Leviticus 13, is a rather tedious process. And so all the priests were, were not schooled in it. There were certain priests who were schooled in it. And, and when you were schooled in it, and then you for a length of time, you became sort of the go-to guy when it comes to leprosy. So Jesus says, go to the particular priest who is designated to deal with these matters and can certify your cure. Go to him, the priest. Show yourself to him and present the offering that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Now this healing happens in Galilee. The priest is in Jerusalem. So you have to leave Galilee and you have to travel to Jerusalem. It's inconvenient. When you arrive, the the process would require an investigation into your claims. That's going to take time. And then once it's certified that you've been healed, you need to go through the the process of, of becoming a ritually cleansed and purified. That's an eight-day process according to Leviticus 14. Involves certain sacrifices and an eight-day process. Now here's the big idea, I think. And that is that, that Jesus wants to bring the evidence right under the noses of the Sanhedrin. See, he's in Galilee, and he's, he's preaching in Galilee, and he's, he's doing these amazing signs and wonders in Galilee. But the leadership of the nation of Israel, the, the, the religious and political authority for Israel, is located in Jerusalem. And so by going to Jerusalem and presenting yourself to the priest and allowing, submitting yourself to the inquiry, the investigation, the certification, and the ritual cleansing process, what that means is that the Sanhedrin are going to become aware of this healing. And the Sanhedrin know that that no one can heal leprosy but who? Speak to me. God. See, this is such a cool way to preach the gospel to people who would never listen. They want nothing to do with this itinerant Galilean carpenter. And he is, going to, he is going to force them to deal with him. They're going to come face to face with it. He's preaching the gospel to the elite of his own nation. It's really spectacular the way this works out. Except for one thing. According to Mark's gospel, the guy didn't obey the command. Instead of going as Jesus directed him, Mark tells us, Mark 1, verse 45, but the man went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the news around to such an extent that Jesus could, not, could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed out in unpopulated areas and they were coming to him from everywhere. 
Bummer. I mean, the thing that he didn't want to happen ends up happening. Of course, it's all within the providence and sovereignty of God. But Jesus becomes so wildly popular by these things, right? That it says that he, he has to stay on the outskirts of the cities now. He can't even come in. Now, that's going to change. As I say, the popularity is still ascending. This also explains why the crowds at the Sermon on the Mount were so prodigious. The multitudes are so great to hear what he has to say. What do we do with this? Other than its historical interest, its amazing display of the power of God. I was thinking about it this week. I I think that you can't help missing the application to the issue of sin. I think it just screams at us. Listen, Jesus does not shrink back from a sinner. You get that? It doesn't matter how defiled you are. It does not matter what you have done. Where you have been. How burned and broken and bruised and battered and and deformed and ugly your life is. Jesus does not shrink back. Praise God for such things, huh? Jesus says in John 6, verse 37, it's a great little statement here. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Come to Jesus, and he will receive you. No matter how ugly you are, Jesus will receive you. Not only that, he'll extend himself to touch you. He won't phone it in. He will reach out and touch you. He is, he is moved by our sufferings. You understand that? He is not distant. He is not unconcerned. He is not uncaring. He is, he is moved by our sufferings. The lyrics of a 18th century hymn written by a man by the name of Joseph Hart. They come to my mind. We've sung it here many times. It's one of my favorites. One of the stanzas goes like this. Come ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready waits to save you, full of pity, love, and power. He is able He is able. He is willing. Doubt no more. Come to Jesus, and he will heal you. And I think finally, when he does, it is instantaneous, it is complete, and it is irreversible. Jesus heals sinners like me, and like you. 
If you have not experienced the healing touch of the very Son of God, then today is your day. Today is the, is the day of salvation. Today is the day to be, to be rescued from your sin. You can do it where you sit by calling out to Him to save you. Or you can come see me after this service and I would love, I would consider it an honor and a privilege to open the Word of God with you and show you how you can know Jesus as Savior and Lord. Well, friends, do not leave this place this morning unsettled with the Savior of your soul. Let's pray. Our Father, we are great sinners and in need of a great Savior. And Jesus is that great Savior. As he walked this earth, he demonstrated the very power of God to overcome the most debilitating and devastating of diseases. His heart filled with compassion for those who were hurting. He reached out his hand and touched and healed that leper. And in that incredible miracle, we see an illustration of what he has done for us. While we in our sin and trespasses were defiled, wicked, bent and bruised, cut off from the fellowship with our Creator, Jesus reached forth His hand and touched our soul. And He granted us new life. He has made us His children. And our Father, He offers that this morning, as you so well know, to any who would receive Him. Oh Lord, may Your Spirit move even at this moment in the heart of that young man or young woman, older man or woman. May You tear off the scales of their eyes that might see the Savior in His loveliness, that they might come to Him in faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.